Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I am so honored and pleased to have Ms. Carolyn Adams-Miller. She is the author of the new book, Getting Grit. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I'll put everything about how to contact you and everything in, in the beginning of the podcast, but we've already been talking, and I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, I, I'll tell you guys, this is a great book. I'll put it up here, Getting Grit, and I'll put you the contact for <laughs> it. She actually um, inspired me to start a, a mastermind group with other women physicians, and um, mm. there's a lot to this book, guys, and it's so there's so many notes that I've made. I've like highlighted and underlined, and I tell you, it's amazing. So I'm sorry uh, to go on, but I'm just so excited to talk to you, but tell me, Tell us a little bit who you are and how, how did Carolyn Adams Miller become, you know, this grit master? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I don't know that I'm a grit master, but I do try. Um, so I live just outside Washington, D.C. I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian. I have three, three adult kids and I've been married to my husband for um, since college, really. And I have been on a path of understanding and sharing hope, goal setting and grit for um, at least 30 years because I bottomed out with an eating disorder in early 1984. And that was back when you'll, you'll understand this, this, that was back when nobody got better. And it was one of the most hopeless conditions you could be struggling with. So I became bulimic at 14 and at 22, I got married at 21 at 22. I literally hit my very last bottom, one of hundreds of bottoms. Um, cause I couldn't get out of it and I didn't know anybody else who'd gotten out of it. And, um, and I think it was like a death sentence. If you had an eating disorder, it was a death sentence. You were going to die or you were going to live with it for the rest of your life. And I didn't want to accept that. So um, I found myself at a 12-step group for compulsive eaters. And a woman said a sentence in February of 1984 that saved my life. And um, that sentence set me on a mission that saved my life. And I think since then, I've I, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of letters since 1988 when My Name is Caroline is published. Um, I wrote the first book by anybody who overcame bulimia and lived to tell about it. But the sentence, let me tell you the sentences because I think it speaks to what you and I were just talking about. She said, my name is Betsy. That's a pseudonym. My name is Betsy and I'm recovering from bulimia one day at a time. And I just remember, and I still get, I still get goosebumps. Um, the hair stands up on my arms because I just remember... I didn't know how hopeless I was until I heard that sentence and felt hopeful for the first time in my life. That somebody who looked like me, talked like me, had a similar story to mine, had had the same shameful eating disorder, but she was sitting there saying she'd gotten better. And it gave me hope. And because she gave me hope, I did whatever it took to get better. And I you know, stopped all substance abuse, all alcohol. I haven't had a drink in over 30 years. But it started me on a mission of, how do you help people set and accomplish big goals, big dreams, and persist in the accomplishment of those dreams? Because overcoming my eating disorder is still the hardest thing I've ever done. The thing I'm proudest of is, is that. I have no shame in talking about that whatsoever. But how do you help people dream big so that they play big and live big and leave behind the legacy they're proud of? And so that's what led me from book one in 1988 to book seven, which is getting grit. They all have the thread running through them. And that's my icky guy. That's my, that's what I wake up for every day. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I think 
the word hope is really what resonates with me because I think that's where I've been able to help patients change, which we were speaking to earlier. So the getting grit component, can you describe, cause you have, there's lots of different grits that you describe in the book, but right. yours, the one you focus on is the authentic grit. And, um, yes. can you tell us what that means and what that, what would be a descriptive way of describing that? Sure. So um, authentic grit is my way of looking at what Angela Duckworth, who really came up with this whole field of research, and she has this free grit scale you can take. Um, she describes it as passion and perseverance in pursuit of long-term goals. And I realized as an executive coach and people who work, someone who works with people, that it just um, left a few things out that were very relevant when you work with real people with real goals. And that is you can have too much grit and you can um, have the wrong kind of grit. So I decided that the right kind of grit was the kind that brings out your very best self, but that also awes and inspires other people um, to ask themselves why not and to play bigger. So for me, it's not good grit unless other people are uplifted, inspired and awed um, by what you're doing, how you're doing it, because the how you do it um, led me to think about bad kinds of grit. Um, and so I have a lot of examples of authentic grit and even ordinary grit. We're surrounded by ordinary grit, people who are doing extraordinary things in ordinary circumstances on a daily basis, but they aren't the ones who are going to call attention to themselves. So there has to be a certain amount of curiosity and in interpersonal relationships to even find out who they are. But that's my definition of authentic grit, is the, is the passionate pursuit of hard goals outside of your comfort zone, where you take positive risks um, and you do hard things um, and you live your best life in the process of doing it. But by doing so, you leave behind footprints on other people's soul where, and fingerprints on other people's souls where they can't help but ask themselves, what if I played bigger? What if I... What if I went after something that was so meaningful to me that I will forever regret not doing it if I wake up one day? So that's my good grit, overarching definition. Absolutely. And I've used those exact same questions as, well, what will you miss in 10 years? You know, or yeah. why, why do you wish you could be doing in 10 years or doing even now with someone's health? I like the ripple effect. You're, you're exactly right. There is such an amazing ripple effect. And I think that's kind of where I, when we cultivate health with lifestyle medicine is the ripple effect it has in relationships and other things. That's the fun part for me. Um, yeah. and when you, when you see, when you describe people doing big goals, are these professional goals? Are these, um, physical goals? What are these goals that you're seeing these people set? They're all over the map. And one person's hard goal is not someone else's hard goal, but it's usually a goal that is so meaningful to you because of what it represents to you. And it starts a domino effect of believing in yourself and believing that you have the capacity um, to make a difference, to change not just your own life, but the lives of other people simply by role modeling, whatever that behavior is. For some people, it's quitting smoking. Um, for me, it was overcoming my eating disorder. And I had no idea how many people would be inspired by reading my book, My Name is Caroline. I really had no idea. Um, and so I, I get people doing that. I get people who want to sell their the company they started so they can then uh, start a foundation and give money away. Um, people who want to get sober, people who want to write a book, people who want to write for run for political office. I mean, it is all over the map. If I've learned one thing as an, as an executive coach, it's don't ever set anybody else's goals for them because you never know what is going on in their soul and what is meaningful to them because small nuances can have a, a big 
big difference in whether or not somebody uh, sees the goal as meaningful and purposeful um, or not. And then we also talk in the field of positive psychology about harmonious passion and obsessive passion. So you want to have a harmonious passion. It's a passion for something that elicits your best self. An obsessive passion is like a jealous lover um, that takes all joy and and um, goodwill out of your life because it's somebody who who or something some obsessive pursuit that blocks out other people and other positives from your life. So it has to be a harmonious kind of passion for the goal. Hmm. And so you mentioned the the words positive psychology and like I was telling you earlier. I mean I don't know if I was just living ignorant or not, but. Those, those, that field and the, the, the field of like even a health psychologist, I didn't even know those existed. Can you tell us what that is exactly? Um, Because I think that's so important for all of us to understand what that is. Right. It's a good question. Um, So the field of positive psychology is the study of human flourishing and also the study of flourishing institutions, flourishing relationships, flourishing uh, organizations, flourishing um, countries. So Martin Seligman and other psychologists in the late 1990s, and he was the president of the American Psychological Association at the time, they turned the field of psychology upside down and said, we have really failed the world by studying what's wrong with people. We need to study what's right. And at the time, the study of human illness and depression and things that were wrong with people completely dwarfed the study of what was right. And so it was like 17 to one in terms of what we were looking at. So he said, why don't we study joy and awe and gratitude and altruism and all of the things that make people flourish and organizations flourish. And so that is the field of positive psychology. It's the study of flourishing. How do we amplify the strengths and the, um, the positive behaviors and habits and then amplify those so that we get maximum good? And so I did get a master's degree uh, 12 years ago. I was in the first class of 33 people to get a master's degree at the University of Penn with Pennsylvania with Martin Seligman um, in this study of applied positive psychology. And I say applied because applied matters a lot because what he does and, and what other places now do in other countries who also have master's programs in this positive psychology is they bring together people from all over the world in different fields, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, priests, politicians, in my case, um, an executive coach and author and speaker. And we marinate in the ideas and the research of positive psychology and related fields of motivation and um, all kinds of, you know, associated fields in psychology and other studies. And we go back after the year there and we begin to apply the research to help other people transform. And it's one of the most exciting things I've ever been involved in because I've seen the research on what happens when you just study the theories and research in the field is you are marked forever as a different human being. Mm. And you can't not change because it's impossible to hear the research. Um, Barbara Fredrickson's research on broaden and build. What's the evolutionary advantage of positive emotions anyway? Or, or social contagion or Gottman's um, research on five to one and flourishing marriages and relationships. You can't not stop yourself dead in your tracks and say, 
well, where do I stand with this research? And mm. am I waking up to do something meaningful? And am I a positive energizer? So you come out of the study a completely altered human being. And that to me is the most exciting part of what's happened in my life in the last 12 years. Wow. That's just, that could, we could talk about that forever. Just even, <laughs> even the study and the theory. I mean, I love it how you said he actually took the field of psychology and turned it upside down. Cause I remember in college in yeah. the early eight, late eighties, early nineties, you know, we took abnormal psychology and sociology all that was really fascinating. Right. But you're right. It was focused on the negative, but it's just like medicine. We focus on, you know, illness. the illness and the sickness and we prescribe these pills and we do this, but we don't ever focus on, well, what about those blue zones? I think that's why, you know, Dan Buettner's yeah. book, uh, The Blue Zones were so successful because these people are flourishing and living into the hundreds and they're not in nursing homes. They're yeah. fully active individuals in their communities. And um, yeah, I think we should have a positive medicine field versus, uh, you know, like a negative. It's like a sick care versus healthcare. Wow. Cool. So it's so cool. You, you, there's so much you can do in your field with this. Um, yeah. and Blue Zones is to such, and his book thrives. Such wonderful yeah. um, books that point the way to let's thrive. Let's not treat illness. So anyway, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's where the field of lifestyle medicine is coming around. And so many doctors don't even know what that is. Um, so I get mm -hmm. a lot of people reaching out, and that's part of the reason we started the mastermind group with building around your book, because physicians, mm -hmm. I think we're an innate group already have some grit. I mean, we had to get through medical school and some tough training, yeah. um, but we lose hope <laughs> as we're just hit and hammered with the realities of medicine these days and yeah. this huge administrative burden. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a really interesting time right now to be in medicine. Um, but some of my, my, uh, friends here in my mastermind group, they had some really interesting questions and, um, you know, for one of them was, you know, who did you intend the book to be for? But I think that could be for anybody who's looking right. to, to have some positive improvement in their life. Right. But, um, she, one question was really cool was how, what would you have said to yourself, your younger self, with what you know now? Would you have changed your your journey at all, or do you feel like this journey provided you the skills and set you know your your traits of who you are now? I mean, what would you tell your younger self? Oh boy, that's such a good question. Um, I I think I would have said to my younger self, um, and I was asked a version of this question on the Good Life Project podcast with Jonathan Fields, which. Um, I went really deep into some of the damage that was done in my family. I had a borderline mother, have a borderline mother who was really not my uh, supporter and very much my um, antagonist. And I wish I'd said to myself, stop trying to please everybody. And I think that's a, a really female quality that many have. There was new research showing that women who try to be nice, quote unquote, nice and accommodating in the workplace, don't get promoted, never make what the most unpromotable man makes. And I think a piece of what I had were the shackles of just trying to be the good, the good woman, uh, the perfect woman. And I wish I had said to myself, do what you love, um, follow your heart, but help other people. Because I do think my eating disorder became my spiritual home in some ways, because I learned for the first time. And because I grew up here in Washington, it's all very competitive. Where do you go to high school? Where do you go to college? What are your SAT scores? What are, I was a competitive swimmer. Um, 
uh, on and on and on, I learned that it was really about the joy of connecting with other people and giving back because I was told that you can't keep what you don't give away. And that was very profound to me because I realized that it wasn't just about me getting better from my eating disorder. It was, could I share it with other people too? And that's when life became happy for me. That's when I began to flourish. That's when I discovered what the well-lived life was all about, was ironically in the seeds of my biggest failure. I mean, just a huge failure um, to flame out with an eating disorder after graduating magna cum laude from Harvard, and you marry the, the captain of the lacrosse team, and you're supposed to have it all. And I had nothing. I had nothing of value when I really think about what does matter um, inside your soul. So it's not that my marriage was bad or I was bad. It was just, I'd had all the wrong goals and I didn't know what love really was when it came to self-love. So I would say to myself, love yourself, trust your instincts, um, but help other people make a difference in the world. And so I just have to thank the good Lord every day that I was struck down with an eating disorder because without that, I can't imagine how unfulfilling my life might've been if I'd stayed in the straitjacket of pursuing the goals everybody else wanted me to pursue. Because now I know what a good life is and I think I have it. Wow, that's incredible. Um, that's really powerful. It brings me to the point of, so when you, I know Betsy in the, in the yeah. 12 step, when she mentioned those words gave you hope, but then you said you did something different. You know, that was the beginning of your healing, but where did you decide that you had the where for all to share this with others? I mean, because that takes some confidence. That takes, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of courage and bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where was that point? And how was that going on in your mind? Like, how did you decide that would happen? That's the fascinating part. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I took the VIA strengths test, which I just love. I use that with clients. I took that 12 years ago and found that one of my top strengths is bravery and zest. And the ironic thing about people who are brave is they don't think they are brave. They feel like they don't have a choice except to do that thing. And I don't remember ever thinking I wanted to be famous. I certainly didn't think I was doing something brave. I felt like I had no option except to write a book because I was a writer and I love to write and I've always written to write a book and let people know that you can get better. And I really felt like it was my obligation that I was one of these incredibly fortunate people who hit my last bottom in Baltimore, Maryland, and happened to have a community of 12-step recovering people around me. I mean, how lucky could I be? Um, And I had this gift of writing and um, I, I just felt like I had no choice. So I don't think it was a process of methodically deciding to do anything. I felt called to do it. And I felt like the book in some ways was channeled. I wrote that book in a hot rush and was very lucky that Doubleday won the bidding war to publish it. And they had published, they were about to publish Betty Ford's book. And um, they really had a good sense of when to publish a recovery book. So um, I really am very concerned about the eating disorder field on so many levels right now. One is that I feel we're still back 30 years ago when I was the first one to go public and say, hey, look, people, we can get better. And by the way, we need treatment centers, even though I never had one. I really felt like we needed them. But we're still back with people in their early 20s saying, look at me, I got better. And I think there's a selfie component to it that's not healthy. Because if you go public really early in order to get people to I don't know, have sympathy for you or to just look at me, 
you're not really setting yourself up or anyone else for success because you haven't weathered the ups and downs and vicissitudes of recovery. So what you do is you kind of go out and if you don't have four years under your belt, what if you slip and other people, some celebrity goes out and she slips or has, you know, public slip. I just don't think people have really thought through what they've done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I felt strongly that I just wanted to give people hope and it wasn't too complicated after that. Um, But I do have a lot of thoughts about what the eating disorder world they have a big Achilles Achilles heel right now, and I really wish I could do something to help them with it, but that's another conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, which, when you're describing eating disorders, you're talking about bulimia, anorexia. What about you know binge eating disorder? Are you describing all mm-hmm. of that spectrum? Because I, I think there's so many people that do hide, and I think physicians in particular, mm-hmm. at least primary care physicians, we were not... Um, there's so much you have to learn as a doctor that we just weren't prepared for the mental component of what's required to be a good doctor, at least a primary care doctor. Right. And when I, when I, I'm just moved to Florida from Colorado and I was here working with Dr. Joel Furman and we were working with people who came and stayed with us for extended periods of time. And we had, we did intense psychotherapy with patients and many of them had mm-hmm. this, you know, binge eating disorder. Some of them were recovering bulimics. Different, and I, it opened up a whole nother world, like a shadow yeah. world almost. Um, that's, um, they felt very shameful and stuff that I just didn't understand the other parts of the psychology. It's like, you know, a lot of doctors are like, why can't they just get better? Why don't they just do what I ask? Why don't they just yeah. do this? There's so much more to that. Um, the, the hurt and the, the thought mm-hmm. processes and how they, they, they see things differently. What would you recommend to someone who may be listening and really struggling and they're, you know, they've been afraid to seek help. Where, where would you recommend someone even start to, to look for recovery? Oh boy. Um, I had tremendous success in a 12 step group because I was ready. I mean, I, I couldn't go any lower and there weren't options. There were no treatment centers in 1984 certainly nothing where I was. I think there was a padded room at Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore and that was it. So I knew it was really up to me to actually get better. And I think when you reach out and find examples of recovering people online, um, it gives you some hope. So I think that's available now. There are people who are trained in addiction medicine. I think that's out there. But you have to start by by disclosing your secret, if it is a secret. It was for me. For some people, it's not. It's widely known within a friend circle that somebody's struggling. They just maybe aren't ready or whatever. But you have to ask yourself, you know, are you really ready to do the work? And one of my concerns that is clearly communicated in my grit book is I don't think we've prepared the generation of the millennials to do hard things Mm. because we've made it so easy for them to feel successful without actually doing anything. And the reason I learned to be gritty is because I didn't quit when it got hard. I mean, I just, I shake my head when I hear about this trigger warning stuff. I mean, can you imagine in 1984, if I had had concerns about trigger triggers, like, you know, the triggers are everywhere when you're recovering from an eating disorder. It's commercials on television. It's the Miss America pageant. It's driving to the store. It's going out with your colleagues from work. I mean, what's this trigger warning stuff? You have to learn to be more resilient. You have to find ways to have a resilient mindset and a plan. And so I, I do get concerned that people aren't prepared to do the work of recovery or to do the work period mm-hmm. towards accomplishing hard goals because truly all of the best things in life are outside of your comfort 
comfort zone. And doing easy things only results in feelings of mediocrity. Doing hard things, going outside of your comfort zone and what they call in goal setting theory, challenging and specific goals, you always get best performance, but it's also the only way to build what we call authentic self-esteem. And so that is part of my concern is that have we created a generation of people who not only navigate away from websites that don't load in three seconds, but can they sit with you know feelings of disappointment and failure and pick themselves up and realize there will be another day. They can keep, get up and keep trying. I don't know because my children are 28, 25, and 22, and I just watch standards collapsing all around them, everywhere, sports teams, school, communities. I just couldn't get over what, what, what I was seeing. And that just fueled my concern. Mm -hmm. in so many ways, which, you know, helped me to want to write the book about grit. Oh, boy. Let me tell you, I think the reason I know I liked <laughs> you from the beginning, because I'm one of those, I'll call myself a gritty parent, because my kids were scrubbing toilets by, you know, six, seven years old. I'm like, listen, I'm not here for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up in a home that was um, not not a positive influence. So I think, you know, I had to do what I had to do, work three jobs and mm. the college. And, you know, I didn't have the luxury of someone, you know, saying, Oh, you can do it. So my kids, um, yeah, they're 23, 21, 18. Um, they understand the value of hard work. And especially I loved what you were saying about these kids and they don't understand that they're just, that's just life. Okay, they, they're, life. you're not going to have the bubble wrap to bounce around life. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. And my middle child, who's 21, Jonathan, um, and I've talked about him before, he's okay with that. He had severe dyslexia. And um, what happened was I developed hypothyroidism when I was pregnant with him. And I think that was part of it. And um, wow. when, yeah, so yeah, so there's, a, there's that lifestyle thing about autoimmune. And that's a whole other story. But um, when right. Jonathan was born, um, he walked later than everyone else. He was unable to, um, like he could do numbers really easily, but he really struggled to read. And I, he didn't, he had a first grade and by kindergarten, he, he still hadn't learned his alphabet. Um, and we were putting him in like intensive kit, preschools. And this is while I'm in medical school. They were five through 10 months when I started medical school. And wow. oh, yeah. yeah, so this poor little guy, he, by fourth grade, he had a first grade reading level. And he had been, I mean, we're talking hours upon hours, but what we had happened was before we even discovered he had uh, dyslexia, we were in kindergarten, six months into kindergarten and he, I held him back a year. So he was a little bit older and he still had only learned four letters by Christmas. And I, I had two weeks and I was like, I was talking to friends who were pediatricians and other that I had, you know, I was in my, my medical school and they're like, Lori, you should read this book on the gift of dyslexia. And I read it. It was like, this is Jonathan. Uh, and so we started right. using these tactile learning and he learned 16 letters in two weeks. So this kid started on this wow. amazing, hardworking. I mean, this kid's work ethic is through the roof. Yeah. And you see that all the time with these kids with special needs. They just I, really work so hard. Yeah. And I think, and I look at my other two, they're hard workers, but that was easy. They're, you're, you know, they're on top of their, their class and is, stuff came very mm -hmm. easy for them. But Jonathan in the middle, just he, I'm so awe-inspired by someone who could mm -hmm. do that, who mm -hmm. could graduate third in his class, go on to college, wow. no problems, you know, regular schools, classes by, by his freshman year in high school. But that is so true. And I think, right. you know, and it's just, it's, um, the millennial generation, I think I'm, we're lucky in the sense that, you know, I, 
we're raising our children to be gritty, like you're describing. But what do we do with this culture? How can we as parents, because I know I have a lot of parents on here, grandparents, where should we start with that in our homes as far as, yeah, you know, bringing this environment and having these kids raise up so they understand they can do this? So what, what, do, you, what do you suggest? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is share our own failures with our children so they know to have dealt with adversity and overcome it. And I think we are our children's best teachers. And so I remember when I was getting my first black belt, the thing that was so interesting to me was all the adults who started with me when they quit, their children quit too. And so I think it, you know, a lot of parents talk the talk, but don't always walk the walk. So I think that's one of the first things is how do you expect your children to do hard things if you aren't doing hard things. So that's that's number one. And 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 actually having dreams and pursuing them. And I, I'm gonna speak directly to mothers right now because I, I do know from the research around women is women kind of drop joy and friendships and and, and hobbies from their lives. Um, in the service of quite often taking care of other people, taking care of a community, taking care of aging parents. I mean, it's something that our children really need to see us doing is having our own passions and pursuing hard things. Um, the second thing is we don't want to shield our children from failure. And it's, and I'm a mom. I get it. We don't want our children to hurt. And yet the field of positive psychology has taught me about post-traumatic growth and how um, people are far more resilient than we give them credit for. But post-traumatic growth means that after trauma, people often emerge better. They emerge as more individuated human beings. They discover what their strengths are. They discover who their friends are. Um, they challenge themselves with questions like, why was that so important to me? And do I need to go in another direction? And so if you don't have failures and setbacks, the research finds that you don't even have a well-lived life because we need three to seven very significant setbacks in life in order to really become our best selves. If you have too few, you become as broken as if you've had too many. So don't don't take those those quote unquote failures and disappointments away from your children because they do learn that they can survive and they will survive. And I think I, I there's so many things I wish I'd done better with my own children, but I was smack in the middle of the self-esteem parenting movement, which was so horrible because it, it paralleled what my, my doctor friends have told me is in medicine, it's, you know, one of the signs that someone's in recovery is they feel no pain. If, is that correct? Is that, that was on the checklist, feels right. no pain, right. right? Right. And so it was part of our culture, which is feel no disappointment, never feel sad. And, um, and, and we just really went too far in that direction. And I know things are starting to swing back, but we've done a lot of damage. And the workplace is now really struggling with millennials who come in and can't even get a performance review without falling apart. So we do need to give our children not what we call this fixed praise, where they start to believe that their traits are fixed. And that's Carol Dweck's work out of Stanford University on growth and fixed and growth mindset. Praise your children for what it is they do that involves effort. Don't just praise outcome, like you're so smart or that was so easy for you. You want to be someone who works at things and has an open-ended, I didn't understand it yet. I didn't get it yet. Because then you see... Life is a process of working towards things, not having things come to you effortlessly and easily. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to attack it. That's obviously a piece of what I include in the book. So there's exercises in there. There's all kinds of things that can help people with this that I, that I found helpful as I began to kind of correct my own course. 
Wow. Yeah. And I think uh, going back to kids, I think sports are such an amazing component of that and you talk a lot about your swimming and your kids and the, mm-hmm. I love the swim board <laughs> in the book. <laughs> the story That's, of the record is, board. Can you imagine that? That, that is my kids swim competitively for six years. And I mean, six days a week we're sitting there and I just, I mean, I can't even fathom them not having a record board. I mean, that was what they would, like you said, and they're sitting there in awe going, that's what I have to do. I know. And it's, it's, it blows my mind. And a perfect example of that is my, my youngest running cross country in the, in the mountains of Colorado. So there's cross country in Florida, wow. and then there's cross country in the mountains of Rocky Mountains. So, but you know, what's funny, he, he had such, you see this freshman, he's just blowing past these seniors, but then he gets to that point where these other kids are really working hard and his natural ability kind of kicked ah. in, you know, he was catching up and he had, it was a mind thing. Like that last half mile, the kid would just die. Like, Gabe, you're talking, what's, what's going on in here? So, you know, that was really, it's fascinating. I love that the, you guys have to read the book, the getting grit, the, the record <laughs> board. I mean, there's so much the in that. Board. The record board is like, yes, exactly. That's like, Oh, <laughs> unbelievable. Oh. But, we, but when you talk about mindset, that's another thing is I think children have to grow up understanding that there's a difference between being resilient and being gritty, because it's not enough to just be resilient. Gritty goals that are, are usually longer term goals, very hard goals. You don't achieve them instantly, not even in a year usually. And right. so you have to develop this gritty mindset where you, you do what I talk about is changing the channel. Gritty people find a way to go in their heads and like change a channel and they see a picture, they hear a phrase, um, they have a song, something happens in their heads where they predetermine that they're not going to quit. And so the research that I've, I've seen coming from sports psychology is that the body will quit only after the brain allows it to quit and says it's okay to quit. So in the book, I have stories of what people have told me they do. Where do they go in their heads? Because that's learnable. These are all things we can learn because I did not want to write a book about um, a quality or a behavior trait that was not cultivatable. So it's like, why write about grit if it's, a, if it's only for very special people? And that was where my eating distor- disorder story was relevant was because growing up here, it was obvious in hindsight, I had talent and I had success, but I didn't have grit. I didn't really have to work too hard at any one thing in order to have enough success to check the boxes. So it was the eating disorder that kicked my butt. It was the eating disorder that required me to dig deep and have that mindset and that ability to get up every day and just do my best and have phrases in my head like easy does it one day at a time, attitude of gratitude. Um, and so we have to we have to role model that, but we also have to teach that. So I'm writing curriculum right now on how we can teach grit to our children at different levels, in colleges, in companies, because it is something we can truly cultivate. And we haven't touched on the bad grit, but I should quickly say that one of the reasons I diverged a little bit from Angela Duckworth's research is because I saw that the overuse of grit could be what I call stupid grit. And stupid grit is like summit fever and you see a goal and you don't deviate. It's like, I've got to get to the top of the mountain. I don't care what the Sherpa is telling me. I don't care about the people who roped in with me. I don't care about that whiteout that's coming. I just see a goal and I got to get there. 
Well, stupid grit is something when you pursue a goal to its most dangerous conclusion. And that could be physically dangerous. It could be mentally dangerous. You could be an entrepreneur who doesn't even read the signs that the market has changed. So one of the key things around stupid grit is it's people who lack humility. And they don't ask other people for their advice and guidance. And they don't listen as if it is offered to them. So you don't want to be somebody who's so, so much of a finisher that you finish at all costs and maybe finish at the wrong goals, maybe goals other people set for you that aren't the right goals for you. And then we have this epidemic of selfie grit where you might do hard things, but my God, you have to tell everybody all the time about the CrossFit workout you did and you post it on Facebook like humble brag or you know, you, you've stayed 24 hours a day at work and you've done this, this, and this, and it's hard. I mean, I think one of the examples I like in the book is about this guy, Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL, who decided to out himself as the special forces guy who killed Osama bin Laden. Now, what happened to the quiet professionals? What happened to, you know, having an egoless attachment to the work that you do privately? But we have a culture that celebrates and uplifts people who brag. And I mean, look at our president. Um, I don't want to get political here, but this is a man who can't seem to stop bragging constantly about who he is and what he does. And I think the example he's setting for a lot of people, especially impressionable, impressionable young people, needs to be counteracted at home because it's the humble people, the ones who have social humility and intellectual humility. Those are the ones with grit. Those are the people who learn to step back and allow other people to shine and they learn from them. And then we have faux grit. And I'm sure as somebody who's been in the military, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I mean, people who buy the Medal of Honor at a flea market and wear it, I mean, our nation's top military honor, but we see it in academia, people faking research to get a PhD. So we've got this shortcut generation and people who want all the trappings of being an elite winner, but they don't want to do the work. And so we have to really learn patience and humility and the ability to have discipline and self-regulation so that we can persist in the things that matter to us. Now, you don't have to be gritty in everything, but find the things that, that matter to you and be a finisher in those. And that's where your life will pivot. And that's where life becomes meaningful and worthwhile. And that's what I'm trying to get everybody to think about and do differently. Right. Um, that's, there's, again, so much I could unpack from all of that. That's incredible. <laughs> this I'm is talking, like, talking, talking. No, I love it. Um, you know, a lot of that resonates in service, basically, you know, yeah. being in service to others and not um, doing what it can do for you, but what you can do for others. And, um, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. The, the selfie grit, the faux grit that's it, but, and people are turned off by it though, too. Cause you'll notice that, right. um, they don't, uh, at least in social media. Cause I mean, obviously we grew up in a generation that didn't have, you know, internet and Facebook. And so as I started going into Facebook, so I could basically, you know, you know, monitor my children and stalk right. their friends and see what was going on. Um, it was really interesting. You're right. This, uh, the selfie grip that people are they're just like, you know, when you talk to them in person, they, they are turned off by that. People are looking for authenticity and they're, right. we're hungry for it in America. And you're exactly right. Um, we can't have a political system that rewards this type of behavior. And um, right. that's kind of what we're in the middle of. Mm. Right, because good grit does not repel people. Bad grit repels people and does not awe or inspire them to want to be better. And that's a key determinant 
of the differences between good grit and bad grit. So you don't want to be the braggart. You don't want to be the person who sucks all the oxygen out of the room or what we call the disruptive star in the office. Um, mm -hmm. You want to be the person who is humble. And it's so interesting to me that the greatest CEOs and the greatest athletes all share this common trait of humility. And that's something we really need to learn. Mm -hmm. And as entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, it's a fine line because you have to get the word out about what you do and, how, and so it can help people. But it can also look like bragging if you're not careful. So it's this fine line you you walk when you're an entrepreneur. Um, but generally, it's really about what is it can you learn from other people? How do you help other people? Something fascinating I just learned is Corning Glass. They have what they call fellows. And I learned this from Adam Grant, who wrote Give and Take and, and the originals. And he's just, you know, option B. He's just a brilliant guy um, who I've met through Penn and Wharton and all. But he said at Corning Glass, these fellows get a job for life. But one of the key criteria for getting this job for life is not that you've discovered something amazing and there's a patent on it and, and it's going to make Corning a lot of money. It's how often have you helped other people with their patents as well. So you have to be a giver, um, not just a taker, in order to really succeed in life. And that increasingly we're beginning to um, recognize that and hold it up as an example for ourselves and our children. And I, I just, boy, the things I would do differently, that, that and teaching my children to wait. If I could go back and redo some of the things that I wish I'd known more about from a research perspective, like self-regulation and delayed gratification. I mean, parents who are sitting out there with smaller kids don't do what I did. I mean, have them wait for things. It gives them the keys to the kingdom later in life, and it helps with grit. You're exactly right. And, you know, it's funny. One of my favorite stories that I like to tell is in um, when just running a family medicine clinic, you'll get, I mean, I, I've taken care of four generations in one family. So it's really fun to see the dynamics. But um, I had a mom come in and with her three-year-old and a five-year-old. So I'm in rural Colorado, right? And she's telling the, I'm trying to talk to the mom and the five-year-old tells her mother to shut up. <sighs> Oh, see the disrespect. It's just too much. I mean, I've told, I could, I could go on and left that forever. I was like, I okay. get away with it. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They get away with it. Um, I was like, okay, so the appointment's going to take a little a detour. We're going to learn about timeout. <laughs> so wow. we sat there and we went through the timeout. We, I explained to her that she'd be okay. He's going to cry. He's going to be mad, you know, and, and walked her through just the basics yeah. of of a loving discipline. And when she came back and I said, you need to keep up with that. You know, sure enough, he was much better behaved. He wasn't speaking to her like that. But what was funny was my medical assistant's like, oh, you're teaching time out again, aren't you? It's like, so you could hear the screaming down the hallway. It's really funny. Wow. But it really is. I think wow. we're missing that component of teaching parents to be parents. You know, I think they're afraid to be on the receiving end of a negative response from their kids. I'm like, they're kids. They need that. They crave it. They crave that structure. They but, crave boundaries. They crave yeah. knowing that you care about them. But right. it is so difficult to have your children tell you they, they hate you. But right. somebody very wise in, in the addiction field told me that if your children don't hate you every now and then, you're just not doing your job. And people are not braced for that kind of difficulty, and they don't get through it. So... I see a lot of that here in Washington is more about bumper sticker virtues than legacy virtues. And it's sad because we may be turning out a lot of bright, overeducated PhDs um, 
here, but I have to tell you, don't always see the legacy virtues being uh, inculcated in families. Right, absolutely. Geez, Louise, that's for sure. When, so we, we're, we've talked a lot about this as an American culture. We talked about the grit, kind of where we are. How do you see grit fitting in in different cultures? For example, I was in Uganda uh, last year doing a mission trip with our church. You know, I was, um, I saw 550 patients in four days, but I only saw two diabetics and two hypertensives. The rest were, you know, it was like wounds. It was hygienic issues, those type of things, infections. But their grit is different than what our grit. And I think the one thing that we all noticed, the 20, I think there were 22 of us, was they still had this, this basic happiness. Like they're, even though they're living mm-hmm. in poverty, they, they had cultivated this um, joy that even they, they're, yeah. in the, they're, they're living in, in this horrible conditions. Where do you see that different in different cultures? Or, or is, there, is there a common human grit thing? Is that different? How does that fit into different places? Well, I haven't, I'm, I'm not a widely traveled person, but I've certainly read a lot and I've talked to people in other cultures and I did spend a month in Australia and New Zealand um, talking about grit. Um, and I saw many of the same problems in Australia and New Zealand and had parents coming up to me and telling me stories that just blew my mind that sounded like they were coming straight from here. Um, and I, I, I'm teaching the Nigerian All Access Bank at Wharton and I teach grit there and they talk to me about raising uh, their children in a in a culture of permissiveness. So I think there are tweaks and differences in different cultures depending on um, what the culture values. But overall, I can honestly say, for the most part, what I hear is that many, many cultures in other countries are dealing with the same issues that we've been struggling with, which is trying to make our children happy at all costs. Mm. So I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you that where I've been and who I've interviewed in you know Japan and Australia and New Zealand and um, parts of Africa and Canada and um, I mean I could go, Iceland I mean I could go on and on and on about the people I have talked to who have found the dumbed down playgrounds and their children can't get hurt anymore because they're not even allowed to take risks on the local playground. Um, one one story I had in New Zealand, for example, as a mother came up to me after I spoke at the Christchurch Chamber of Commerce and she said. Oh my gosh, you know, we may be a few years behind you, but let me tell you, my five-year-old came home today from school and he was told that he was the special boy of the day. And he was totally perplexed. He had no idea what he had done to be so special. And she said, the worst part is I have to leave right now to go home and do a project with him about why he's so special. And she said, like, what are we doing to these kids? So that was New Zealand and Australia. A woman, a teacher came up to me and said, can you talk to the parents at our school tonight about... Um, stopping the petition to take down the spider web because there was a mom who was concerned that her daughter had fallen off a rope thing that was called a spider web. And, you know, so she was starting a petition to get the parents all worried about their kids taking risks. And she said, and at the end of the school day today, two of the kids came up and said the highlight, highlight of their days, they almost got to the top of the spider web. Mm-hmm. And she said, tell these parents that their kids crave physical challenge. They want to be challenged. We can't dumbed down their days. So I did speak to the parents and heard later that the petition was dropped. So sometimes you just have to educate parents about the fact that taking away any kind of difficulty or sadness and and buffering your children, which I think is an instinct that a lot of parents have naturally, regardless of of the culture you're in, you know, if when you take that away, and it could be a mostly privileged or, or educated problem, 
um, that we see in other countries, you really are not creating um, someone who's ready for the 21st century challenges. And we all know the world's a challenging place and maybe getting more challenging mm -hmm. uh, the older we get. So, um, mm. so that's my, my take on grit as a worldwide issue. But I, I have to say, overall, we have to teach our children to set the right goals. I mean, I don't care where you live and what you do, you have to teach your children to pursue things that are the right goals for them, to ha talk to them about living a meaningful life, a purposeful life, um, a life that isn't just about you, a life where you use your strengths to their highest and best use. So it's, there, there's never a wrong time or a wrong place to have that discussion. But, you know, what I have found, I, th I find hopeful, is that the parents that I have spoken to, younger parents, because they see, you know, obviously there are a lot of things I could have done better with my children. They're, they're very good at um, letting me know is the communication is very, open. Mm -hmm. you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, but they see that, you know, the kids are turned out pretty decent and they'll ask questions, but they're actually very receptive. So I think parents mm -hmm. want to be told, especially I think from an authority figure as a physician, anyway, it's okay to parent. It's okay not to be your child's friend and they almost take it and run with it. So it's, um, I think they crave the okay to step the outside. Permission. Yeah. The permission. And, um, that's one thing that I've seen over and over again. Um, and I'm happy, you know, to have a, a young parent say, you know, you need to invest in this child, like a garden. You know, I was telling me like, you got to give it the soil, you got to give it the water and sunshine, but you got to pull the weeds too. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. your garden's not going to flourish until you do that. And, um, they really, it resonates with them. Cause I said, because when you do that, your, your teenage weeds are not going to be as bad as they could have been otherwise. So, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, you're absolutely right. Um, but I'm the, and in schools too, I mean, are, do you do much with the education system? Because that, that really seems, that seems well, to be a really cool place to work with kids too. And I'm just starting to get deeper into it, but certainly in March when I was in Australia, New Zealand, and here in the U.S. and other countries, I mean, I do go in and talk to schools because there has been this epidemic of getting rid of grading standards, for example, mm. um, because it can hurt children's feelings to get bad grades. So there's been grade inflation. Um, and there was even a, you've read the book, so you know there's a story about a yeshiva in New York where the parents had the option to kind of call the office and have them print out a fake report card, you know, so that their children wouldn't have their feelings hurt by getting real feedback. I mean, so I think that in, in some school settings, if not many, this microaggression, safe space, dumbing down of grades has really taken a toll. Just last week, there was a story of a professor in Georgia who was allowing his students, now we're talking about young adults here, we're talking about 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, allowing them to select their own grade because grades are stressful. And he doesn't want to put them through any kind of, you know, upset feelings. Now, what do you think it does to students to get a grade that they don't deserve, didn't work for? I can tell you from goal setting theory that people do not um, code something as something they're proud of unless they put real work into it. So many people will choose to take the easy pass in life. I mean, that's kind of a natural thing, take the easy road. But it doesn't do them any good. And yet professors are so afraid of losing their jobs in some cases because students can say, I feel, you know, I feel unsafe in this class if I don't like the book on this reading list or I don't like the grade you gave me. And so I, I think we're in this horrible situation where the consumers are 
are um, basically dictating the standards by which they're being taught in some places. Mm. And that's not good for any of us. People have to get graded in ways that teach them what it is that they need to learn and get better at. Otherwise, right. you know, I, I really, I, I talk about this in the book is that this generation of millennials, they talk about how stressed they are. And the interesting thing is that their fund of knowledge is smaller than a previous generation, previous generations. But it's that they're so distracted by technology that they're never actually stringing together long periods of time in which they can learn things and focus. So they don't have deep work. So they're stressed by the fact they're not getting their work done, but they're not even studying in the right way. So I have mm. to say, there's a whole there's a whole upheaval that's coming and needs to come in, in different aspects of education. So. Wow. And, and that's interesting too, because, you know, you'll see little ones that are playing with, you know, they're sitting them in front of them when they're six, seven months old, the screen just to oh. watch. And screen addiction is a real thing. Right. And, you know, I, I sit there and I go, I can't even fathom. My kids were outside playing, granted, yeah. you know, in the backyard or doing whatever. And then when I was a kid, we were out till, you know, like you hear the people are calling in when it's dark. Um, right. The, the real play is what you're describing. I'm, and you're, I loved your yeah. stories about the, when you, when you talked about this in New York, I thought you were making that up. Like, how could that be? <laughs> I was like, um, that's, in, that's insanity. And your reward in the re- award that you would won when you were in school. Um, I can't remember oh, what it was. Yeah. Bishop scholar, you yes. know, suddenly all these parents are calling my nice private school, which really does have a great education, but I thought they were impervious to this pressure from parents to give away awards, but they weren't. I mean, the headmistress admitted to me that they stopped giving this award because it got to the point where half the class was getting this award for general excellence. But wow. at that point, it's so mean. It's like devalued currency. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. But wow. um, yeah, we, we really have done a really bad job of catering to people who are paying the bills and giving them some kind of pleasant experience when in fact, it's, that's not what, what education is meant to do. When you look at the criteria for thriving in, a work, in the workplace in the 21st century, what they're really calling for is grit and tenacity and the softer skills of connecting with other people, not being on a screen, teamwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't have those abilities naturally evolving from, I, I was driving past some minivans the other day. They have they have like screens mounted in the cars now so that your <laughs> children never have to amuse themselves. They and just watch cartoons all day. I mean, it's like, what have we done? We're just, we're just, we're just moving away from doing hard things and encouraging our children to just occupy themselves. It, thank goodness we now have the results of what's happened. It hasn't been good, and we have to go the other direction, um, or we're really going to be struggling as a nation and as a world mm. with kids who can't deal with hard things. Right. So, where do you think? I mean. I don't know. I, I sit back. There's just so much and you can be easily discouraged, but where do you think this came from? So we can make sure we don't do this again. Was there a, a, right. a history point, a pivotal point or something that happened or what was that? I think there were a few things that all happened at once. One was the self-esteem parenting movement where your children should you know, never be unhappy, try to keep them happy. And if they're happy, they're going to like themselves. And if they like themselves, they'll have confidence. And if they have confidence, they'll work hard. Well, none of that's true. That created narcissists and sociopaths. So that was just a huge bust. And then 
uh, in medicine. The you know patients should never feel any pain. So we've got all these opioids being prescribed so that no one ever even has a twinge of pain. So there was that. There was the milk cartons. And, you know, students growing up, I mean, kids growing up with a carton of milk on the table at breakfast with the missing children on the back. Um, and so that started with Jacob Wetterling and other kids who went missing in the 80s and 90s. So suddenly we've got this whole, you know, fear of, um, you know, being snatched and the safety issues and the lawyers and the litigiousness that happened at playgrounds where you can't get hurt. So, you know, we look at, you know, we look at the results of simply having wood chips at playgrounds and dumbed down plastic structures. And psychologists are saying that this generation grew up without taking risks. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take risks, you don't go out of your comfort zone. You don't break bones. You don't climb trees. You don't do anything that's hard. And so this whole, you know, set of factors just converged in a way that just really has bubble wrapped a generation that the military has even said they're just too fat to fight. You know, they don't have the discipline necessary to even, yeah, you would know this better than I would. I mean, I, I looked at a 2012 re um, paper called Too Fat to Fight. And I looked at just what's happened with nutrition and kids getting fat and sitting in front of screens and not interacting with other people and not taking risks and not getting hurt and not being disciplined and then having, you know, the dumbed down curricula because they can't read Harry Potter because it's about witchcraft. So, you know, then you go to college, you've got safe spaces and you've got kids watching videos of puppies, you know, so that they don't have to hear a debate taking place on campus a mile so that's too dangerous. And then, I mean, I could go on and on and on the comfort animals. I mean, what is that about? Well, you've got all these kids showing up at college with these robo mill letters from therapists saying they can't get through the day without a pet ferret or a snake or a pig or a turkey or whatever it is. I mean, the stories I gathered for the book about kids who say that they're so fragile, they can't get through a day at college without a pet to come home to. I mean, what is the lesson that we are sending when we we are so permissive and allow these things to go on. I think we've got to just put our feet down and say, we don't want to give trophies to every single kid on every team. What's with this mercy rule where we stop keeping score if a team goes ahead by six runs? I mean, the kids are keeping score in their heads anyway. I mean, who are we fooling? Just it's it's so absurd. The Maryland driver's license test has stripped out parallel parking because that's too hard. You know, that kept my kids off the road. They, they didn't hit cars quite as quickly when we had parallel parking. They can't play tag. You can't slide at the park in the snow. You can't go sledding. I mean, stop, people. Like, stop, <laughs> stop, 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 stop. This is nuts. We all know it's nuts, but we all just are like sheep going, well, if it's okay with that person, it's okay with me. But we all know something's really wrong here, right? Right. Oh, God, yes. Oh my goodness. You just got me on my soapbox. I, I just, was like, I just parallel parking? <laughs> what? So parallel parking now is not going to be illegal or something? I don't know. Where's It doesn't go away. The cars the cars will park themselves, they say. Oh. And then Nike, <laughs> Nike, Nike just launched shoes that tie themselves. No. Now your children don't have to learn how to tie shoes. What? I mean, what? I mean, really, what? Okay, can we all just collectively say what? You have to write a gritty parent book. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. My next book is Women in Grit. I, I got to tell you, my, <laughs> my 
next thing is now women and grit because I'm so concerned about all the stuff that's coming out about women. And mm. but that's another conversation we can have. But for right now, I think we all in our guts know that it's wrong to not let students wear their National Honor Society regalia at high school, even if other parents think their children's feelings will be hurt because their kids didn't make the National Honor Society. Because after all, there's still the quarterback on the football team. There's still the lead in the play. So why are we taking away straight A donut breakfast? Like my kid's high school here in Bethesda, Maryland. Like what? You know, your kid's feelings are going to be hurt if my kid got A's and gets a donut and your kids don't get that donut. I mean, we are bowing down to this and allowing it to be okay. And it's it's not. We got to stop. It's like it takes one person to stop a bully. We found that one person standing up to a bully can stop a bully. We need more parents saying, no, I don't want my kid to have trophies for losing every game this season. What's that about? We're celebrating mediocrity? I mean, come on. Really, come on. Stop. That is, yes, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) If I could hug you, I would. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Um, Yes, exactly. So... (laughs) I, I'm like I'm. I'm using. You got speech me going. You got. I'm using. I see. There's so much I want to say, but I, I'm finding words to put it together. I'm okay. So, I do have a thought about this. Do you think this is because I've been married almost 25 years, and I'll tell you why. I've always said, you know, my kids try things because of their dad. They survive them because of me. So I'm there to. Interesting. So, and I'm wondering, do you think part of this is because the dad is removed from the home and we're, we're not allowing men and women to have those men and women are different. Okay. We're not going to be, we're not the same. I'm sorry, folks. We're not, we're wired differently. We think differently. We are emotionally for a reason, but do you think it's because we're really, I think we're, you know, pushing dads in a, in a corner, they can't be the dads or maybe the dads are not in the home as much. Do you think that could have any part of that as far as the grit component and trying and going and challenging yourself? Cause I know my kids have done a lot of stuff that's because their dad and them are conspiring behind my back. Right. I, you know, that's interesting. I don't know. I do have some stuff in the book about dads who rough house with their children have kids who grow up with better Mm self-regulation. And I think too often we're trying to strip away this difficulty again, don't get hurt, be careful, that kind of thing. I mean, rough housing with with dads is actually a good thing. Um, I I honestly don't know if gender roles have had something to do with what's happening or or not. I think that's probably something sociologists can look at. Um, But I do know that proportionally and across all cultures, this has become something that's coming at us from outside around the safety. I mean, the playground is open to everybody. And I, I want to see somebody send me a picture of a playground that doesn't have rounded plastic things that are two feet tall. I really want to see that playground. So if somebody in your audience has one, send it to me because mm-hmm. I know dangerous playgrounds are coming back. Um, and there are at least three that I've heard of in this country. Um, but I, I don't know about dads. I can only speculate, but I think there's probably a lot of forces and there's a lot of really smart people who can weigh in on what is happening. But more than that, how do we go back Mm. and how do we make it okay? And, um, well, how do we make, not just sexy, but how do we make grit so desirable that people want to go in that direction as opposed to the direction of saying, why me? Um, I think that's something that we all have to think through. 
Yeah. So they're actually challenged to take the tougher road that they are, they're drawn to that first. Well, Pete, I, I, I will say this. I looked at the history of Hollywood movies and there has been a rise in special forces movies in the last 10 or 15 years. And my own hypothesis is that we all long to know what elite is. We want to know what are the standards for being terrific or great at something. So when we remove record boards, when we remove difficulty, when we make everybody a winner, I think the people who want to work hard um, feel cheated. And so I think there is this general longing that I think even kids want is they want to know what does it take to be the best. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that that's a piece of what if we were to introduce like that back in where they've gone missing, like I know my kids elementary school, they got rid of a fun run, a fun run, a fun run around the school. It had hills. I guess hills are hard. I don't know. Um, but the kids every year would look forward to it. And believe it or not, there was a winner and a loser. I mean, there, were, there was like one winner in every class. And people all knew who the winner was. Well, some parents got together and said their kids' feelings were hurt because they weren't runners. It's like, so they got rid of it. I mean, bring those things back. I mean, wow. for heaven's sake. So wow. anyway. I That's, think there's a lot of little things we can do. These micro changes can create macro changes, but let's start wherever we have influence and power, bring those things back and let's not see if the standards for excellence don't get higher and higher so that people meet the bar that is in front of them. Yeah, you do describe your web of influence. And I and I love that social networking and stuff. That's a whole nother thing that's fascinating because I was reading about um, the contagion of you know, obesity yeah. or whatever, and I never yeah. thought of it. And there's individuals in those social networks that have this influence. And I'm thinking physicians are an amazing influencer because we are there. So if we can get doctors who learn the tools and say the right words and working with patients, we can have a change, a ripple effect of improvement yeah. in their health and stuff. And, you know, that's fascinating. I, I you know, when people, People, when they come up to me, they love to hear the stories in the podcast of, oh, they lost 270 pounds and now they're running ultra marathons. You know, we are drawn right. to those people who can overcome even their own health issues. They were diabetic on chronic pain medications. And so I think that's why people love those stories. And that's why I love interviewing people like that or people like you who, right. you know, 30 years overcoming the bulimia and still, you know, just still right. going and now sharing your message. Those people fascinate me because they're just so, it's just, just so rare these days. And well, they all and inspire you. And that's yeah. the thing that I think is so interesting is we don't have as many inspirational things in our society, partly because we've cut funding for the arts and music. And those, those tend mm -hmm. to awe and inspire people. Look at the solar eclipse this week. Oh, I mean, yeah. that was awesome. Anybody who was in the path, we were in the partial path here in DC. I mean, it was just awesome. Mm -hmm. And we've taken away the ability to be awed and inspired. But when you see people like what you're talking about or hear about them, we want to know more. I think this is why um, NBC Nightly News ends with people making a difference every night is because we are awed when we see people doing hard things, particularly extraordinary things in ordinary circumstances. But I do know that the, the fastest way to create habit change is to change your environment. And so if you want to have grit or you want to do hard things, be around other people doing hard things because social contagion theory predicts that you will catch the behaviors and attitudes of the people who are closest to you. You know, we're even finding that if you put um, a highly productive person at work next to someone who's a low producer, 
they begin to produce more. So these small things are noticeable and they're contagious. And so we want to be around people who have that impact on us. And that's something that's free. We can figure out how to do that. If you want to lose weight, be around other people who are eating well and losing weight. If you want, you know, we also found this about, you know, interestingly enough, uh, uh, runners training for the Olympics found that training them in isolation in Oregon was not half as productive as training them as a pack in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So you want to train around people who have higher standards than you are so that you're constantly trying to be better. So be in groups that are eliciting your absolute best performance. And then you're always going to rise to a slightly higher bar. And we can all do that. Every day Mm -hmm. we can do that. We can choose it or choose not to do that. And it's up to us. That's absolutely right. And if you... And this, let's say someone who's, that's exactly a very good point. So when I have someone who's like, okay, we need to change our diet. This is what I'm asking you to have a very, a very um, specific way of approaching that and what they need to do. But we always talk about their environment, but then there's always the excuse of, well, my husband doesn't want to do that. Or my kids don't want to do that. So I'm like, so, so keep doing it, do your thing. So what do you tell someone who they just Mm -hmm. want to fall back into for me, I, I see it. The reason I'm, I'm really so pushing this forward is because for me, I see people who, I mean, it's a life and death situation here. I mean, people can continue. Yeah. They could have a heart attack. They could have the diabetes. I mean, there's so much here. So I, I, you know, I've made pinky promises with patients and, you know, just, I've done anything I can. It's like, I shouldn't care more about your health than you, but what do you tell those people who just want to fall back on the old familiar excuses of, I can't, because is, is there something that you've noticed as a mm-hmm. coach, when you've seen someone start mm-hmm. failing? What are those words that you say? Well, that's an interesting question. So my fifth book is Creating Your Best Life. And that book is the first evidence-based goal setting book ever published. So it doesn't sound like it, but it is. So um, until that book came out in early 2009, the best goal setting books on the market were like law of attraction. And I think they really sold people snake oil because setting goals is going to be hard. You have to anticipate there will be obstacles. If you don't, you set people up to fail because they haven't um, adequately prepared for what will happen that will be an obstacle. And quite often, Often those obstacles are in their own environments and it's other people. And so this is why I do best possible future self. So, you know, who do do you want to become? What does that look like? And then come back to now, mental contrasting. And then talk about what are the obstacles that are sure to present themselves? You know what's in your environment. You know who you're likely to encounter, what you're likely to encounter. How will you see yourself around those? So that's where you can work with what we call implementation intentions. Um, And you use the environment to cue better behavior. If this happens, then I will do the following thing. So it's called if-then scenarios. But then you also want to talk to people about who are the people you're going to be around. You can get them to sign behavioral contracts. Behavioral contracts are incredibly um, effective. Even if you never look at the contract again, the simple act of signing a contract has been found to have an impact. You can also have text message reminders, um, pair people up in mastermind groups. Um, But you have to anticipate the impact of other people because um, the best laid plans, you can have goal set with goal setting theory and all these fancy things. But if you go back home to somebody who doesn't believe in you, and you know, the Michelangelo effect is that people sculpt us with their words. If you're around people who sculpt you with the wrong words, it could completely undermine your best intentions. And the other thing that we know from Shelley Gable's research at UCLA 
is if you share your goals or good news with people who don't respond with curiosity and enthusiasm, you're likely to abandon your goals. So it's called being an active, constructive responder. Who are you sharing your good news with? Because if the first person you share it with is not an active, constructive responder, the research shows that you're more likely to abandon goal, you know, weight loss, you know, exercise, pursuit, any of those things, simply because your brain will then recognize it as something that's bad. And so you have to really, really watch who is in your life, who is getting your attention. And I'm going to go back to women right now, because what we find is that most women surround themselves with frenemies, friends who are enemies, because they don't want to be seen as not nice. And I have to say, we do it at our peril because the people you share your goals and your good news with have to be active, constructive responders. And if women are surrounding themselves with people who are passive aggressive or active destructive or some variety of that, why bother setting goals if you're not gonna pay attention to the environment that you're putting yourself in? So we have to actually ask people about that. Otherwise, we are getting a clear window into not just their motivation, but who is waiting for them to be successful. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's nobody and they have to create that platform in that environment before they actually plunge into the goal pursuit. So the preparation for that action might be some of the most significant work that has to be done. Wow. That's a, that gives me a whole nother light on prepping someone for success is, you know, I never even thought about the, I always call them, they're like saboteurs, you know, the familial saboteur, but I would always be like, just do it, you know, but now I see you almost the prepping is, well, let's, let's think about those people in your life who are your positive reinforcers. You know, they, they respond in that responders, right? Yes. And be prepared for the biggest saboteurs to be your family members. Oh yeah. I've seen that over and over. And I think that's with and any goal pursuit and even, yeah. yeah, even if it's way beyond even just, you know, reversing chronic disease, but it's as simple as running a 5k, you know, people, but I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. Like I've had patients who are literally trying to stop diabetes, hypertension, things that can kill them, put them in the hospital and their loved ones are bringing home Kentucky fried chicken and a plop it in front of you goes, you know, you want yeah. that. And I'm like, who yeah. does that for yeah. people that they love? Like, what? I'm curious, what is that with people? Why are the saboteurs? What is it? Yes. Because you're holding up a big mirror to them and you're saying, I'm going to do something hard. I'm going to go after one of my dreams. And when you do that, you're holding up a mirror to somebody else who may not be challenging themselves and most people don't. So the research shows that 80% of people are simply reactive to life and they're not being proactive. So if you have the audacity to change and you have the audacity to have a big dream and you have the audacity to pursue Um, getting grittier, then you are basically telegraphing to the person in this relationship, this is who I'm going to become. This is who I want to be. And if they don't want you to become that person, because remember, you know, drinkers want to be with other drinkers. People who don't exercise want to be with other people who don't exercise. It makes them feel comfortable. It's part of the contagion approach. People want to be around people who don't make them feel bad. They will And maybe they love you and they don't even know they're doing it, but you sure as heck better be driving your own bus in life and knowing that this is what's happening to you. So whatever the intentions are, whether they're well-meaning or somebody simply doesn't want you to change because they're jealous or they don't want you to get better because then it means they got to look at their own goals in life, you got to do something about it. And I say, put those people in a container. 
you know, caller ID exists for a reason. Don't pick up the calls for the people you know are going to be Debbie Downers and black holes. You know, don't read the emails that are going to eat you up. Don't spend time with people who are, you know, going to suck the life out of you and say passive aggressive things like, why would you want to run a 5K and hurt your knees? I mean, don't go there. Have some volition over what you choose to do with your time and your energy. And I think women really struggle with giving themselves permission to be that person. Right. And if I had been that person, I would not have gotten better. And I doubt I, I, other people would have been inspired as early as they were to get better in the 80s when my book came out. If I had sat around and waited for someone to say it's okay to go through that door, I would probably be sitting around going, can I go through there? Will people think I'm nice? Am I allowed to do that? Are people going to be mad at me? I mean, come on. We get one life here. Do what you have to do to get where you need to get. I mean, it's pretty simple when you come right down to it. <laughs> it really is. And you're absolutely right. And I attract, as a female physician, I seem to attract women. And you're exactly right. We do. We, we, make, we take on their excuses and make them our yeah. own. And we don't allow ourselves to dream or to yeah. go beyond what we know would be uncomfortable for others because we don't want to be seen as the not nice, the caring mom. We don't want to be rejected for whatever reason they had in their childhood or their whatever, you know. And um, But it still holds true even for people who have great. I mean, we're still super sensitive to rejection from friends or someone else or someone making an unkind word but you yeah. you go back to but then you build this reserve I think or foundation it's like well, let's reflect on this how is that really the truth you know so I think you're exactly right I mean we just got to empower women I'm really excited can I read your book yet <laughs> I'm so no. excited about your oh, woman my gosh I am so fired up about what's happening to women, but we have to do it anyway. Mm. It's like um, when Senator Elizabeth Warren um, was reading something in the Senate one day and Mitch McConnell got really mad and he said she was censured for reading something about Martin Luther King. And the famous quote was, nevertheless, she persisted. Well, I have a nevertheless she persisted t-shirt and I gave it to my daughter. It's like, you better persist, baby, because it's just not easy to be a woman because it's it's just not, period, end of story. Be ready to be gritty. Go watch hidden figures. I mean, do whatever you have to do to get fired up about being a woman who's prepared to do whatever it takes to get where you need to go because you're going to hit obstacles everywhere. Might as well get used to it. But persist, persist, persist. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't want to exclude men, but I just think women, and I think this has been more apparent since um, Trump was elected. I think there's more disparaging opinions that people have held about women and feel free to say that right. I think even we thought was possible. I mean, right. or even I didn't know people could, I, I, I mean, I truly didn't think you could do some of the things he's done and still be an acceptable person in the company. But hey, this is where we are. So let's get a little tougher and let's just go out and get things done. I think the best thing that ever happened was in many ways exposing where we really are. Exactly. And so exactly. Yeah. so there's some good things that have happened. I think that's a really, it really puts us where we, you know, that mirror is now in front of us is like, wow, we're actually tearing back the skin and seeing what's ugly, this stuff underneath and what we need to work on. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. But yeah. And yeah, and I know your daughter's in law school, so I'm sure that's a tough field, especially for a woman, especially if she's going to Ivy League school. 
Is that right? She's right. going to Harvard? It is. She's at Harvard Law School and, you know, right. she's, it's hard enough to get in there, but it's hard to be there too. I mean, right. every day you find out that there's people better than you at things and you just have to get used to it. I mean, wow. look, you can't be the best in everything. But what I, I, I've been compiling all of these stories and research over the last year or so, just about women and grit, because I found that when I was doing interviews for Getting Grit, one of the most fascinating things I discovered that was that whether I was interviewing a man or a woman, and I asked them who their role models were for the behavior we were talking about, whether it was the resilient mindset or the big goals or the passion or the persistence or the risk-taking, almost every single time they told me that their role model was a woman. And I really started to think about why would that be? Why would women be such a powerful force in storytelling and in role modeling that people would be marked by whatever it is they had done? And I'm realizing that it's just, it's that much harder to be a woman. So if you succeed and if you persist, um, you have to be that much tougher than everyone else. I doubt my husband has had a day of discrimination in his life as a white man. Mm-hmm. I know I face discrimination literally every day on some level as a woman who's not you know, thought to be able to do certain things. And so one of the things that um, I, I amassed um, is that female Supreme Court justices are, are interrupted constantly. Um, and they're interrupted by men arguing in front of the Supreme Court who never think to um, interrupt a male justice. And other male Supreme Court justices interrupt the women. So, you know, interruption is just a sign of incredible disrespect. But what we're finding is that when you look across all these fields, including a stunner of an article in the New York Times last Sunday about how women are described on economic job boards with uh, words about their appearance and men are always described with competence, is um, you just we're not where we thought we were and that we're still judged on things about being pretty rather than gritty. And we have to get past that. We have to teach women and men to expect different and to do different. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of work ahead of us. And that's, again, that's where, that's where I'm going with my time and energy for the foreseeable future, because I feel this is the way I felt when I was writing my, my first book, my name is Caroline. I don't feel like I have a choice. I have Mm -hmm. a platform. I have a gift of writing and I have to do something, whatever I can do. I have to do something to bring these tools and this hope to women who maybe haven't had the benefit of some of the role models I've been able to have. Um, So I have no choice. That's the direction I'm going in. Wow. So when you start looking at, and you're writing this new book, where do you start? Like, what is your, I mean, that's such a wide topic. How do you decide I need to focus here and, and where do you even begin? Well, it always starts in my heart. And um, it was like, I, I didn't expect it. I don't, my books find me more than I go look for them. It started in my heart and then it started writing itself in my head. And I, I coached a composer once who told me that his head gets hot when he's um, creating music. And I found that I have words that dance together like couples. And like in a, I see them in a ballroom and these words start to dance together and then they become sentences and then they become paragraphs. And it's just writing itself. It's like, it's, it's like a person. It's like J.K. Rowling talked about Harry Potter had to get out of her head. And that's, she'd failed at everything, but finally she couldn't fail at anything else. So it's like, okay, I'm just going to write this stupid book because this little boy won't, won't leave me alone. That's the way I feel about this. This book will not leave me alone. So I find that I'm just to stories and research. And I've got, I have a, a system. I pile things up. I organize them. I, but you know, I've got a system and it's writing itself. So we'll, wow. we'll see where it ends up. So um, anyone out there who hears this or feels like they have a story or some research to share with me about women and grit, 
Caroline at carolinemiller.com. I'm very findable. Cool. You know, you, and you responded very quickly. So I will definitely share everything that we've done. Wow. I bless your heart. I've taken a lot of your time this morning. So, um, I could talk to you for hours. I have a feeling. Oh, this is such a pleasure. I have a feeling we'll talk again. But, <laughs> yeah, I would love um, for to. Now, this has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. And um, I like to end every podcast with acknowledgement and just say thank you to all those who maybe haven't reached out to you or those thousands of people that are, mm. who knows, millions that you may affect or have. And um, say thank you for your bravery and courage to write those books that, you know, and, and talking about being gritty in a, in a time when it's not, some people, you know, are very uh, defensive about it and will push away. And I think it's important that someone take that stand. And uh, I think it's fabulous. And so thank you so much for everything you're doing. Well, thank you. And the greatest gift you can give an author, I hate to say it, is is a review on Goodreads and Amazon. And just say what, what you liked about the book or why someone else might benefit from it. Because those reviews, yeah. they take another few minutes out of your life. But I can't tell you how much they matter in an author's world when it comes to other things that happen with your book. So I'll put the link. And I've already done that too. Yeah, no, I'll put the Amazon and the, you said Goodreads as well? Goodreads, yeah. Cool. And um, I've already done that. The moment you email me back, I was like, I'm definitely doing that. So thank um, you so much. I really appreciate that. that. Absolutely. So thank you again so much, Carolyn, for your time. Thank you. And what a pleasure. And we'll talk again. Absolutely. 